The second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 23, verses 33 to 43. Before I read the text, I just want to also say it's so wonderful to come together on Sunday that church should really be fun. That's one of the things that, um, and by that I don't mean entertaining, but it's a place where we bring all of our gifts, we bring all of who we are, and that should bring us a certain level of joy. So feel free to plug in and and participate in the different ways that, that bring you joy. And that's what adds joy to the whole community. So we are in Luke chapter 23, verses 33 to 43. And friends, hear the word of the Lord. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he replied, truly I tell you, today, You will be with me in paradise. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Well, here we are at Christ the King Sunday. Christ the King Sunday is the culmination of the liturgical year. Next Sunday marks the first Sunday of Advent, which is the beginning of the liturgical year. So if you think about, um, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's this really wonderful icon, in, and I can't tell you which church, so that's my bad. I apologize. But it has Mary holding the baby Jesus on one side, and then on the other side of the icon, it has sort of the, the individual Jesus holding out his arms like this. Those are those parallels of the first Sunday of Advent in Christ the King. Those are often held together in our liturgical artwork to help us remember that the one who comes in small, uh, quiet ways uh, is culminated in the one who comes to reign. Um, And today we're going to be talking a little bit about what that reign looks like, right? What it looks like. How does Jesus define the reign of Christ the King? Because it's not about our ideas, right? It's about how it is that, that Jesus defines that. So that's kind of the idea that we're working with today. And you'll see that come up in all the different music and liturgy uh, and also in our text. So this week, um, 
I made sourdough bread, which I don't always do, but I had an opportunity to make it this week. I've been sort of craving the opportunity to make it. And I love making sourdough bread for, it's Thanksgiving too. We gotta talk about food, right? So I just thought, you know, this is the week to talk about food. Um, so sourdough bread, who's made sourdough? Few people, yeah. So I love making sourdough um, because it's so local. It's so local. Um, it's all about the air, right? And the sourdough that you get here in Seattle is very different than the sourdough that you get in San Francisco. In fact, you probably didn't know this, I didn't know this until recently, that the reason why the sourdough bread in San Francisco is so amazing is because of where they cultivated that, those yeasts. So they were just right on the bay there and you can think about how salty that air was and it really added to, uh, it created a certain starter that now is infamous and famous. Um, but that's the reason why it's all about the air. These wild yeasts that we can't even see, it's hard to believe. I didn't even think they were there, but it turns out they are. These wild yeasts that we can't even see, they live in the air and then they're drawn into the sugars of the food. So the way that you make it is you put out something that has a certain level of sugar in it. It doesn't have to be wheat. It can be all sorts of things. It can even, in other cultures, there's all sorts of things that they ferment. So you can actually do it with like sweet potatoes or cassava um, or something like that. Uh, I'm sure there's other traditions that are out there too. But the idea is you put out the food that has the sugar in it. Um, and then these wild yeasts that we can't even see are drawn to that sugar and they begin to take up residence within the dough. They actually begin to sort of live within that space. And then there's this sort of wonderful and interesting exchange between they consume the sugar that is within the food and then in that consumption, there's carbon dioxide left, right? And we know that then that's a gas and that kind of helps to expand the food. So that is how sourdough is made. It's fascinating. And it's really interesting also because when you're approaching sourdough, you can't actually look at it like any other recipe. You have to approach it like it's alive because it is. So it's something that you tend. It's not just something that you sort of put together in a pot, throw it in the oven, done. That is post-industrialization food, people. So this is actually a living thing, right? You have to tend to it. You have to approach it as a living thing. And you have to sort of recognize that you're not in control of it. Who, who ever approaches food from this perspective? That's me, I'm crazy. Um, but it's so interesting. It's this living thing, right? And you sort of notice what it needs and does it need a little bit more of this? Does it need a little bit more of that? You have to respect it. If you don't actually take care of your starter, it can turn into this horrible rancid disaster, which has happened to me before, you do not want that. But if you take care of it, if you feed it, I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. If you feed it, if you tend it, if you observe it, you will actually be rewarded with this really fantastic product, which is deeply nutritious, and also tastes really good too. That's how sourdough is made. Now I wanna contrast this with quick bread and I promise you that we're getting somewhere uh, with all of this, but it's kind of fun, right? Um, so contrast this with quick bread. Quick bread was a discovery that was made sometime post-Civil War. It was all about how do we get things to people really fast? We don't have time to do all of this work. We have got to get stuff to people as fast as possible. So quick bread was an important invention, but it was made by a chemical reaction. You put together an acid and a base, 
And those two things together then create that same thing, the carbon dioxide, but it's a reaction. Okay? There's no symbiotic process that's happening there. It's a chemical reaction that happens that expands the food. And hence that broke open all of our wonderful new habits that we have around muffins and pumpkin breads and scones and all of that. That is all because of this whole invention of quick bread. So what's the difference and why does this even matter? So sourdough requires the tending. I just want to notice that today there's a tending, there's a process that actually happens in that. And it's less about putting all of the ingredients together and then poof, we end up with this magical product. It's more about paying attention to the process and noticing the tending. And I want to suggest that that has something to do with what it is that we are seeing in our text today. Because so often when we think about salvation and when we think about what Jesus is doing, we think about it as a chemical reaction, right? That all of these different pieces come together in a pan and all of a sudden, poof, there's salvation. Now, I'm not going to say that doesn't happen because on the cross, we've recognized that something really significant happens that does in fact enact salvation, But when we actually look at what's happening within the person of Jesus, it's very, very different. Jesus is not so much interested in getting all of the pieces together and making an instant change. And it's very clear in this text today. So if you want to just turn and kind of have that open so that you can take a glance at it, you're welcome to do that. But what I want us to do is to notice that the temptation that is always put before Jesus in the text, and it comes up at least three or four times just in the text that we read today, the temptation that is constantly put before him is do something. Save something. And by that action, you will show us that you are God. Right? So that is what people are saying to him. Make something clear and obvious. Save yourself. And this is then compounded when he's on the cross hung between these two other individuals because what one of them ends up saying to him is save yourself and us. Now of course that's the human cry and I want to take just a moment to acknowledge that there should be compassion around that and understanding so we don't look at that and stand in judgment of it. But we have an opportunity to notice that that is not, in fact, what Jesus chooses to do. Right? Because it is a perspective that imagines the world in a way in which God operates for us on our own terms. It is a world that enters into its own imagination by believing that the world, in fact, is our dominion. And that we get to choose the way in which God reveals God's self to us. That that, in fact, should happen on our terms. And our terms are determined by what we need. And in this particular moment, Jesus utterly rejects that. And he exposes it, in fact, as an error. Because he doesn't say it with his words, but he says it with his body. No, Jesus says, 
I will not sell myself into an, into an imagination where being God is a mere function of your own desires and fear. I will not be God on those terms. And it is terrifying because what we want, and this is why I'm saying to enter into the space with compassion, because what we want is God on our terms. We really do. We want a God who can eradicate climate change. We want a God who can eradicate racism. We want a God who can bring us together with a snap of a fingers. We want a quick bread God. We do. And in a sense, we need a quick bread God, right? But that is not what the God of the New Testament continues to teach us about what God is. It's just not. And so instead, what do we see? We see that in the most desperate moments, when all of this power hangs in the balance, when in fact there is a chance, maybe for a short-term moment, to change the political spectrum, to, to sort of change the directory of history, probably wouldn't have lasted forever, but there could have been some short-term consequences should Jesus have given in to these requests. When everyone's eyes were open to see, when the curtain was thrown back and the stage was set and everybody was on their knees just begging, Jesus, will you just give them what they want? Will you just do it? In this moment, Jesus chooses something totally different and his language is this. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. And in this sentence, what I want to suggest is that he indicts everybody in that space who has built their life on a system of transactions. He indicts every single person who has built their life on a system of transactions. Quid pro quo, we might say, right? For those who have been in touch this week, I haven't had the patience, but I have done, tried to do a little bit of catch up with all of the impeachment hearings. Quid pro quo, we're hearing it over and over and over again. But his answer to this is no. No. I will not do quid pro quo. I will go to death, he says. And I know we've heard this sentence as a promise for resurrection, and I think that it is a promise for resurrection, but I think that that is the privilege of having that post-Easter perspective, right? We can look back and we can say, he's talking about the resurrection. This is fantastic. And there is an element of that in this sentence But really, what Jesus is doing in that moment, if we were to sort of get aside from our post-Easter perspective, really what he's doing is that he is claiming not the power to escape death, but the power to enter into it. And that is a totally different kind of power than we have ever seen before in the history of what it means to be human. Because what he says is that my power is not based on the fact that I can escape this moment. My power is based on the fact that I can enter into it fully, without fear. 
And in that moment, what he says is that I am not about escaping death, and I am not about the power of this world, but I am ultimately about the power of building another. Even on the cross, Jesus tends to the process. He tends to what it needs to what it means to be human and he does not seek to escape it. He just doesn't. I'm so struck by this word paradise. I really like that word. I was an English major in those days we read all of the um, European authors. Um, and so we spent a lot of time with Milton and Paradise Lost and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's, it has such a like medieval ring to it, right? And it's been taken and used um, in the Christian tradition to talk about the world after. Um, but if you were to go back, paradise is a really fascinating word. It's actually a Persian word. Okay? It doesn't even come from the Jewish tradition. So interestingly, what Jesus is doing here is he's using some sort of indigenous theology. He's using some, some words that people would have known in a language that didn't even belong to them, but in a language which would have been borrowed and maybe inherited from some of their exile days. And he's, he's owning that word. He's making it his. He, and it's a word that actually just means park. Park or shady garden. It's a beautiful word. It means sort of a place of respite, a place where you'll find a sort of a break. And, and actually, it really has to do with climate, which is interesting because if you think about the Middle East and especially the area that was Persia, which is now modern-day Syria and like sort of eastern Turkey, you'll notice that that's a really hot area, right? It's hot there. And to be in a paradise was to be in a place where there were plenty of trees to sort of create that shade and create that respite from the sun. And from that word, it actually evolved just to sort of highlight something, to mean something from the, from the afterworld. It didn't actually mean resurrection, but it, it meant that there was sort of this life after death, that, that, that after the soul or the body had left the world, that it was going to enter into a paradise, which was sort of a respite, a respite until the final judgment, right? And it wasn't a super religious word either, which I think is important for us to know because Oftentimes what Jesus will do, and he does this in other times, especially in his last days, he'll reach into his Jewish tradition and grab something really secure. But here he's not doing that. He's really using the language of the people. He's using the common language. He's using this sort of folk language to talk about this idea of paradise. And he accesses what? The idea of a garden. Now, what other gardens do we know of? <laughs> right. Eden, right? We know. There's, there's another garden. Another important garden in our mythology, in our understanding, in our imagination of this text. Garden of Eden. In this very small word, I wonder if part of what Jesus is doing is that hinting that here in this moment on the cross, he's actually set out to accomplish the very thing that he began so long ago, so long ago. To create a place where the human can be with God, 
not for any other reason than to be with God. There's no purpose for the garden. The garden just exists. Because it is. Because that's what love does. It just does it. It doesn't have a reason. Just does it. And so when Jesus accesses this idea of paradise and of garden, could it be that what he's saying is that as I choose to go into the place of death, I am choosing the very choice that I made from the beginning, which is to be with you for your own sake. There is no transaction. There is just me for you because. And in these last moments, what he states is what has always been true. I exist to be with you. That is the way that the world was made, and that is what I will restore it to. The greatest tragedy that comes out of the garden is that we don't want that. We want something that operates more transactionally. And when it doesn't work in our favor, we want to hide. And that is what we end up doing. We hide. We hide from ourselves. We hide from each other. We hide from God. We have all sorts of spectacular ways of hiding. We hide behind white supremacy. We hide behind racism. We hide behind political beliefs. We hide behind religious beliefs. We hide behind all the things. We're experts at hiding. And it's okay. It's okay. It's okay because we have a God who knows how to find us. And a God who, when it really comes down to it, when everything was ready for that God to just do exactly what we wanted with the snap of our fingers, so that we could have everything that we want, and none of those major barriers of hiding would have to come down, in that moment, God proclaims the divine no. No. I'm going to die because I'm not afraid. And it is this choice that will enable me to be with you. No more hiding. No more running. No more snap your fingers quick bread. I exist to be with you because this is how I choose to be God. Now, friends, we don't have to like that because it's hard. It exposes us and it indicts us in many ways, but it's also comforting because what it means is that the whole world that we've built that exists around economy, 
and leverage and transaction and quid pro quo, that that's not the world where God is king. That's not the place that Jesus is building. In fact, Jesus says no to that and says, I'm going to build something else. So Christ the King is that opportunity to say, which world do we want to build? Which world do we want to put our investment and energy into? We're stuck in the world of quid pro quo. We're not going to get away from it. We all know that. It's okay, right? But that doesn't mean that that's where our allegiance has to be. The question of Christ the King is where is your allegiance? Can you trust the one who says, no way, I'm going somewhere else. And today, you will be with me in paradise. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you so much for this text and how it exposes us and how it calls us and how it brings us out of hiding and back to you. We are so vulnerable there. We are so scared. Raise us up by the power of your spirit. In your name, amen. Friends, let us stand. Oh, no, never mind, we're not standing. We don't have a hymn. Um, I'm going to offer the prayer for the offering, and then we're going to reflect and hear Eric's lovely piece on the King of Love, my shepherd is. So please remain seated and let us pray. Lord, as we get ready to receive these tithes and offerings, we recognize that it is so much more than just the gifts that we bring, which are needed to turn on lights and pay bills. But in this giving, we want to claim that our allegiance is with the world that you want. So help us to just be, to provide a sketch of what that might be. In your name, amen. May the ushers please come forward. Mm-hmm.